Yeah, this is Frank Bill, author of Donnybrook, and I'm doing a fucking awesome podcast with the guys over at Booked. Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. This is a very special episode of Booked. Not only are we bringing you another live reading, which we haven't done in, what, Rob, months? Two months at least? A couple months since but, March. Yes, since March. But this episode, episode number 150, for anybody who's not keeping track. Oh, I thought you were going to say we're recording on a holiday again. <laughs> well, no, today's not a holiday, is it? Today's no, Friday, Friday, it's a milestone, though. It is a milestone, but yeah. Happy 150th episode day anniversary there, Pookie. That's a lot. That is a lot. But uh, so in, in celebration, we're bringing you a two-part reading. That's right. Uh, recently, we talked about this a little bit on the show already, but recently we uh, <laughs> we made a kind of a harrowing drive down to Chicago to uh, record the Sunday Salon Chicago reading that happened i think it was what the 19th that sounds right yeah featuring such illustrious authors as sarah gerkensmeyer russ bradbird emily rapp and rob roberge oh and you know what this i know this is going to kill you tonight because not only are, are we going to read some longer bios but we're going to have like 10 bios we're going to be reading oh, there's so many bios <laughs> i wasn't thinking it. about it until we started putting the notes together for this and I'm like, oh man, there's so many hosts, and there's an MC, and then there's the authors. It's like a barrage of bios. There is a barrage of bios. Would you like me to get started on a few of them? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. These first two are so concise. Were, are these the way you got them, or did, did you strip these down? Oh, I trimmed every every bio that people hear on this episode, and the next one is going to be as heavily doctored by me. There you go. I'm telling you, man, there's something in that. You should be able to market that as a service. I know, Brevity Incorporated. Mm-hmm. All right. First, before I get into bioing people, um, a little bit about Sunday Salon. And this is uh, from their website, which is sundaysalon.com. Sunday Salon is a prose reading series and online magazine based in New York City and founded by Nita Noveno in the summer of 2002. Sunday Salon swept through the Midwest to Chicago in 2006. In 2007, Sunday Salon launched an online zine to showcase the prose of its alumni and up and coming writers. Um, apparently, Sunday Salon, New York, Nairobi, and Chicago. Can we go to the one in Nairobi? Uh, I doubt you'd actually want to. No, I wouldn't want to because that's traveling to Chicago is a little much for me. So I'm not a very good traveler. <laughs> All right, a little bit about our hosts. Natalia Nebel is a writer, translator, former managing editor of the literary journal Chicago Quarterly Review, and a board member of Shaw Chicago Theater Company. Alexandra Sheckler is an editor of instructional materials at Chicago Public Schools and a freelance writer-editor after hours. Christine Sneed is the author of the story collection, Portraits of a Few of the People I've Made Cry. <laughs> what a great title. Good. And the novel Little Known Facts. Her stories have appeared in Best American Short Stories. Oh, Rob, help me out with this one. Pen, Pen. slash O? That one, yeah. Is that? I guess that wouldn't be a tip. Henry Price Stories, Plowshares, New England Review, Glimmer Train, Southern Review, and a number of other journals. She lives in Evanston, Illinois, and teaches for Northwestern Universities and Pacific Universities writing programs. 
Uh, yeah. So um, I just want to say, as far as trimming goes, if, uh, if an author bio, or I guess in this case a host bio, includes like the 8,000 awards and fellowships that they've uh, earned over the years, mm-hmm. those get cut first because... I mean, we're all happy for them and proud and everything, but like, it's just it's, we have a limited number of time, amount of time that we want to sit in front of a microphone. So, I mean, it's not like we go around saying how we're co-hosts of the award-winning book podcast, right? No, I mean, we have. Oh, won, I do. We I have can't won an say. award and uh, the uh, 2012 This Is Horror Podcast of the Year Award. So, we'd like to thank Sunday Salon for uh, being very gracious hosts and letting us come out and, uh, and set up our recorder and um, and all the readers and the hosts who had to put up with me snapping pictures with a flash for two solid hours. I'm sure that was uh, I'm sure that was wonderful for everybody. But yes, thank you so much for having us out. Um, wonderful event. And we are really happy to be able to bring it to you, the listeners. That's right. So we're breaking this reading up into two episodes and um there's plenty, don't worry, plenty of bios to come next time. Um, but I'm going to shoot you one more just because at the beginning of this, um, the guest MC for the reading is announced. And it's kind of, I say, I, I pause there because he kind of guest MCs the first half <laughs> and then chaos ensues for the second half. But uh, um, so you're going to hear Patrick Somerville is the name of the, the, the gentleman that introduces the first two authors. And uh, here's a little bit about him. <laughs> He has taught creative writing and English at Cornell and Auburn State Correctional Facility and currently teaches in the MFA programs for Northwestern and Warren Wilson. His books include two collections of short stories, Troubles, and The Universe in Miniature in Miniature. It's weird that that repeats, but that's how I copied it, so I'm hoping that's accurate. (laughs) Um, His writing has appeared in The New York Times, One Story, APOC, GQ, Good Magazine, Esquire, Guernica, is that how you would say that? Mm-hmm. Good, yeah, me, I can, I can pronounce. Oh, well, that's that. how I'd say it. We maybe we just both say it wrong. Hey, that's true. And best American non-required reading. He also writes for the FX drama The Bridge, which premieres in the summer of 2013. And that came up a little bit while we were there, but I didn't really make the connection until like last night when I was watching TV and I saw a commercial for it. I'm glad I didn't come off as fanboyish because I'm, I, I love everything that FX does. And <laughs> We were standing outside, and he's like, uh, someone was talking to him. He's like, yeah, I'm writing for the bridge. I was like, the one on FX? And he's like, yep. And I was like, oh, cool. And I was like, that's so cool. He's writing for the bridge. <laughs> you handled yeah. yourself well. Because I, for me, it was easy because I had no idea what it was. So I was like, all right, he's writing for a bridge. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Very much but, looking for it. Maybe we'll have to have Patrick on to talk about the bridge at some point. Yeah, that'd be cool. But yeah, like once I saw the commercial, I was like, I met that guy. It was kind of cool. All right, let me tell you a little bit about our first reader. Sarah Gerkensmeyer is the author of the short story collection, What You Are Now Enjoying. Her stories have appeared in Guernica, The New Guard, The Massachusetts Review, Hayden's Ferry Review, and Cream City Review, among others. She received her MFA in fiction from Cornell University and now teaches creative writing at State University of New York at Fredonia. Do you think that maybe, maybe Patrick Somerville was her teacher? I mean, there's a crossover there, Cordell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's a teacher. She got there. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Seeing some correlations here. Mm-hmm. All right. And the second author you're going to be hearing tonight is Russ Bradbird. And here's a little bit about him. He teaches writing classes in New Mexico State University's MFA program. Uh, he's a Chicago native, and he coached basketball at UTEP 
UTEP and New Mexico State for 14 seasons before resigning to pursue a writing career in 2000. His fiction has appeared in Southern Review, Colorado Review, Puerto del Sol, Freight Stories. That's one of those like deer and deer hunting, I think, the Freight Stories. <laughs> <laughs> and Athlon. His essays have appeared in the New York Times, the Houston Chronicle, El Paso Times, Las Cruces Sun News, Heartland Journal, Slam Magazine, Bounce, and the Los Angeles Times. Paddy on the Hardwood, A Journey in Irish Hoops, was his first book, and it was published in 2006. Um, can I just say that I also overheard that he was the uh, coach at Von Steuben High School? And if I'm reading this right, he was probably coach of Von Steuben right when I was going to school at Roosevelt High School right down the street. There was quite the rivalry there. Oh. So, I mean, I didn't like, you know, give him dirty looks or anything. But if we meet again, Russ Bradbury, just want you to know that could happen. Yeah. Well, it's a good thing. I mean, you could have totally psyched him out by telling him, like, this is where I went to high school, buddy. And then he would have been thrown off all night. He would have done a bad performance. Well, that didn't happen because he didn't do a bad performance. And neither did Sarah, who's uh, going to be uh, sharing an excerpt from a story in what you are now enjoying. Um, thank you all so much for being here. It's so great to have you all here. Um, and sorry, there's a little bit of a wait tonight, so I really appreciate your patience. And um, anyway, I'm Natalia, and I'm uh, an organizer of Sunday Salon Chicago, along with Alexander Scheckler and Christine Sneed. And um, we're so happy to have all of you here tonight. Thank you for being here. Um, we always say that you know we couldn't really do this without you too. So um, anyway, our guest curator tonight is Gina Frangello. Uh, she's put together an amazing lineup. And um, Gina is a writer. She's also involved with uh, Other Voices, The Rumpus, and Nervous Breakdown. Um, and she also asked um, Patrick Somerville to host tonight. So um, he's doing that. We're really happy about that. Um, so anyway, um, I'm going to call Gina um, up here now <laughs> so I, and um, give the floor over to her, um, and she'll let you know more about the writers that she's chosen and all of that. So thank you so much, and a uh, warm welcome to you, Gina. All right. Hi, guys. Thank you for coming. Um, you know, we usually have a lot of local writers here. And I try to get, like when I curate, I try to usually get like one out of town person and um, for each one. But I just decided this time we're gonna go for broke and go for people who are not living here anymore or ever. And um, <laughs> the thing is, is, Chicago is kind of a flyby city on book tours. People just are not sending their writers here. And I, I mean, I thought for years that that's just ridiculous and, and that we, the writing, you know, the reading series in the city need to make an effort to bring these people in and, and just sort of entice these people and let them know that you know there's an audience for them here. So, so we have some of my favorite writers here tonight. Um, I mean, I've known Russ for five million years through my mutual friend, and you know, and uh, and have been publishing Rob since like 1998, and have been a fan of Emily since you know she was just blogging. She had a previous book, but. Um, and then Sarah just came to me sort of through Facebook channels, which you know is, is how things happen these days. And it turned out that she was friends with Patrick, and so we wrote Patrick in to FC. And so you know, next thing you know, we've got our, our little four-hitter book tour here tonight. So um, thank you all for coming. And I will actually turn over to Patrick, and we can get rolling. 
hands the baby to Jan before she even has a chance to sit down. Immediately, the placement officer begins to unbutton Jan's blouse. You remember to wear the right kind of shirt, the woman says, moving quickly. You've been taking your vitamins, I'm sure. And then the baby is pressed there against Jan, skin to skin. The baby knows what to do and does not hesitate. Jan has never breastfed before. Her right breast grows warm. She lets herself look down and catches a quick glimpse of a few shiny, almost translucent tufts of hair. Somehow she knows that it is a boy. Jan looks around the little lobby, a room full of spidery, thriving plants. She is surprised when she realizes that she's alone. The placement officer has disappeared. Jan guesses that she's behind the door with a sign that reads, personnel only, please. Jan stares at the empty chair across from her and tries to remember exactly what the counselor had told them during their first few group sessions. She had said something about a moment of surprise, followed by a numb sensation over, all over. She had mentioned release and circulation. Jan notices two things. One, her left eye has stopped twitching. Two, she knows that she's going to be a little late to work that morning and she doesn't care. Before they started going to the group therapy sessions, Jan and her girlfriends would meet for drinks a couple times a week. They'd find each other after five in a dark bar downtown, a lot like this one. They'd order something strong and stare at one another's doughy skin, which was flaccid and unremarkable in the dim bar, zapped from an entire day of fluorescent lighting. I'm tired, Jan said on a cold Wednesday a few months back. It was 5.30 and they were all there, crammed into a booth, warming each other. I'm tired too, Nina said, her huge eyes peeking beneath heavy lids. They were always tired, and they always talked about how tired they were. They drank and yawned and then went home. But instead of sitting there that particular early evening and nodding, they started to talk about exactly what kind of tired they were. Jan told them about her headaches, which her friends knew about, but she really described them for the first time. Nina talked about the acidic knots in her stomach that jumped into her throat and she was, a nervous, and she was nervous at work, which was often. She shuddered when she described the sensation. It's like trying to swallow fire, she said. Danny was quiet. She ordered a shot of tequila. Her thick hair was pulled back into a haphazard, beautiful mess of knots and twists. She started to yawn and then stopped, forcing tears to the edges of her eyes. Danny told them about the tiny lump in her right breast. She had noticed it three weeks before. Her doctor didn't think a biopsy was necessary. He says it's stress, she said, something fibrous and they all nodded to make it true. They ordered more drinks and stayed too late for a weeknight. Look at us, Jan said, holding up a shot of tequila, closing her eyes. We're stuck. She threw her head back and took the shot. We're stuck for some reason. Her friends smiled at her, even Danny, whom she was scared for. Jan got a call from Nina the next day, well before lunch. The three of them usually didn't call each other at work until late afternoon had rolled around when they were all sitting at their desks, feeling something slow pull at them from the inside. Nina had found a website. We're perfect for this type of therapy, she told Jan, explaining that group sessions were about to start in a Lutheran church basement on Wednesday nights, a few streets over from where they usually met for drinks. This type of therapy was becoming quite common. Jan knew of women who had undergone similar treatment. A couple of them worked a few floors below her in acquisitions. She'd seen them at the small Greek cafe across the street during lunch and noticed a little glow, a looseness in their shoulders. She had wondered if it was forced. I'll try it, Jan told Nina. Nina called Danny next, and for the rest of the day, they kept calling each other, the red light blinking on Jan's phone. She used her office voice and spoke in short sentences. Even though she was excited, she managed to sound professional. 
She laughed a little, but it was the low, hollow office laugh that slips below the radar. When Jan is switching breasts, he gets a lost look in his eyes. His fists search the air, he squints at the ceiling, but it doesn't take long. Jan is a fast learner. They both get settled. Jan's feet and hands grow warm. At the fifth meeting, a couple of weeks before each woman was assigned a baby, they had learned about how breast milk is a live biological fluid. Jan couldn't help thinking about tide pools, about all the rubbery, salty things she had seen while poking around with a stick when she was on vacation at the shore as a kid. They learned about living immune cells. Jan started to have second thoughts, but then they were fitted for the harnesses. Jan was surprised by how natural it felt after all the straps had been adjusted. And after the Velcro was pulled into place, a hollow hammock rested just below her breasts. The counselor filled each woman's empty pouch with oranges. They practiced walking around, sitting and standing up. Jan, Nina, and Danny huddled next to the doorway, ignoring the cold air washing in from the empty linoleum hall. The three of them giggled and tried to lift their shoulders. Jan wanted to ask them if they were really going to go through with it. They looked at one another, at the lumpy hammocks hanging beneath their breasts, and breathed in the surprising smell of citrus. While walking down the soup aisle at the grocery store, while switching from the left lane into the right lane on an empty highway while sleeping, Jan will forget that he is there. Then she'll walk past the long mirror in her downstairs hallway and see a little hand floating there near her chest. She'll rest her index finger in his palm and he'll hold on for a while before she tucks him back in. People know what's under there, like it's any big surprise. Some people do stare. Jan's Pilates instructor seems uncertain. Her hairdresser gives her a look, and Jan wonders if she's worried about the chemicals. People know he's not hers, the way she covers him up like that with her special mail-order shirts. They know she is in therapy. She watches strangers glance at the bundle resting beneath her chest and then try to diagnose her in their minds. Performance anxiety, social anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder. With that one, they try to guess exactly what happened, why it was so traumatic, she was the only survivor of a horrible fire, or her father killed her mother with an axe. If Jan eats too much spicy food, he makes a lot of more noise than usual, and most everyone notices the hump of his little body then. Jan sees other women with the telltale swell beneath their shirts. She does it too, stares at them, and starts firing away silently, disorder after disorder. One night, the counselor talks about the benefits of breastfeeding besides the psychological ones that brought this group of women together. She talks about how breastfeeding is a form of birth control. She talks about how milk production burns up to 500 calories a day. She says it's like swimming 30 laps or riding a bicycle uphill for over an hour. The counselor keeps listing things and Jan zones out. She closes her eyes and pretends that they aren't sitting in folding chairs down in the basement off of the church kitchen. She imagines that they are up in the sanctuary and a few candles are lit. Jan doesn't even have to listen. She feels whole. If they were in the sanctuary, Jan could stare up at Jesus' face, which would be floating above the counselor, his wooden arms spread wide. He'd be looking down at all of them. Jan does not know what to think about Jesus, about God. That doesn't bother her, not right now. Jan, Nina, and Danny avoid the bars and meet at each other's places instead. They end up spread out on one of their beds, a bottle of red wine on a nightstand or a bookcase. Can I feel for the lump, Nina asks Danny one night when they're at Jan's house. Nina looks nervous, and at first Jan thinks she's embarrassed to feel Jan Danny's breasts. 
but then she realizes that Nina is scared to discover something. Danny sets her wine glass down on the floor. Press with the pads of your fingers, she says. When she lifts up her shirt, Jan gets a good look at the baby girl that Danny was matched up with and notices that she has wide eyes, a hairline that hasn't filled in yet. Nina reaches past the baby and gently pushes into the breast that Danny is feeding with. The baby doesn't seem to mind. She keeps feeding. There's nothing, Nina says, absolutely running her hand over the baby girl's head before helping Nina pull her shirt back down. Nothing to worry about at all, Danny says. They stay up late and order Indian takeout. Jan wishes her two friends could stay here, spread out on top of her bed forever. They could eat an eternity of butter chicken and garlic naan bread. That could be it for the rest of Jan's days. When Jan changes his diaper, he watches his shadows on the ceiling, if there are any. He gets cold easily, but he is patient and fusses rarely. They make eye contact from time to time, and Jan can't help thinking that he is shy. She snaps him back into his onesie. She smiles at him a little. He watches her, and there is a soft punch in her chest, something like recognition. It isn't unpleasant. Nina is sitting there on the church steps, waiting below the red double doors when Jan and Danny arrive for the next meeting. I'm not going in, Nina says, her hands stretched out stiffly on her knees. Jan and Danny sit on either side of her. I started to feel weird about it, Nina says. There's an edge of panic in her voice. Jan turns slowly and looks at Nina's shirt, a tight-fitting black turtleneck that hugs her breasts and falls straight and flat against her ribcage and abdomen. Nina looks like a scarecrow, like her stuffing has been ripped out. You took him back, Jan says. Danny shakes her head at Nina in slow motion, her hair full of life and bounce. I felt like there were so many questions I should ask when I took him back to the agency, Nina says. Like what, Danny asks. I don't know, Nina says, about what would happen to him, I guess. Aren't you curious? Jan shrugs. Her shoulders feel strong. She watches Nina stare at her and Danny. Nina is jumpy and can't sit still. Her breathing is hard. She looks hungry staring at him like that. And Jan just shrugs. She can't help it. And then I promise the story gets weird from there. Um, I'm actually going to read the last piece in the collection because it's only about a page and a half long. And then I'll hand it over. This one's called The Cellar. We're old now. Now when we open the cellar door, we know that there is more than just the fuse box and the wheezing dehumidifier and the dirt floor. Even before we flip the switch and stare down into the milky, weak light of the little bulb at the bottom of the stairs, we can tell. We spend time down there and ignore the mustiness and the draft. We wander the aisles and stop to touch the things on the shelves. We are always careful. There's the wedding of our favorites are the things in jars. There's the wedding ring that was lost in a Minnesota lake early in our marriage. We squint at the dull glint of it resting there at the bottom of the jar full of cloudy liquid. There's the first $5 bill that we ever paid the babysitter. There's a recipe for the bread that we used to make every Sunday. The collar and tags of our second dog. A feather from a favorite down comforter floating weightless like a ghost. We know that we are supposed to make something of these objects. We know that we are lucky to have them again lined up in neat rows and labeled with little typewritten cards. They are here for us to gaze upon for hours if we wish, and we often do. There is no sense of urgency. Memory is a careful, rhythmic pulse at the base of our souls when we spend time down here. There is no young or old. There is just this, the collection of our lives. Our once upon a time has become our relics. It's not just jars down here. There, was a couple, there are a couple rows of glass display boxes. Each one lit up softly from below. We found our first argument yesterday. 
We found the moment when we first met and stared at it for what felt like hours, watching it flicker and buzz. Seeing these things isn't anything at all like living them again. Early on, we talked about that for a while and made sure to make this clear to one another. It's a curiosity, that's all. There is a glass box at the end of one of the rows that contains a particularly passionate embrace. The edges are frayed with loose threads, but the color is still rich and vivid right at the center. There is a glass box full of lost keys. We come down here. You'd be surprised by the pockets of warm air that can be found in an old cellar. How they can wash over two frail, close bodies like unexpected waves. How they can touch. Thank you very much. Chicago native, he coached basketball first at Von Steuben. A little bit, yeah. Inside info, I got it today on Facebook. And then at UTEP and New Mexico State for 14 seasons before resigning to pursue a career in writing in 2000. Since retiring from college coaching, his essays have appeared in the New York Times, the Houston Chronicle, the El Paso Times, the LA Times, and many other publications. And then Tony Nelson has this to say about Russ's novel, Make It, Take It. Everyone, it's right over there. Russ Bradford, like other tough visionaries, has selected a universe unique unto itself, college basketball. In it, he reveals quintessential American issues, race, power, corruption, and sometimes excellence. Make it, take it, cast light and shadow on both coaches and players. It also quietly invites the reader to consider the ways in which basketball reflects the country's virtues, as well as, it, as, well as its lamentable flaws. This is a very savvy book. So give it up for Ross Bradford. I wonder if I could do this without a microphone. Could I do it? Could I? Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I will just, since just the coach in me, once you start getting this, talking to the, talking to the team in the locker room, sorry. And also, you can sort of, I can do the statistics. We, we get into statistics as well. I'm like the, figured the 21st best writer in the room here. It's a little intimidating, so it's, it's an honor to be here. Uh, uh, um, and also, I figure there's four books for sale, and probably most people, I could get left out if you only buy three. <laughs> but if you can afford five, I could, be the, I could be the guy for two of them. Uh, and so this is just a little portion of the novel. It's like, like some of you have taught a little bit of freshman English. And so part, part of the novel, it's really a novel in stories. Uh, and uh, part of it is this uh, essay from one of the players named Leonard Redman. Uh, it's an, an essay about uh, an event essay, including scene and dialogue. So it's, uh, it's, it's not really well written, but it's not me. It's Leonard. <laughs> it's, it's, it's Leonard, he's sort of the star, star player of this, uh, this, this team where everything sort of goes wrong during this season. So is my volume okay? Everybody's yeah. Yeah. happy? Okay. And so it's Leonard Redman's uh, Writing in the Humanities, his event essay with scene and dialogue. Uh, the, the event I have chosen to write about most people will never have to go through. I was arrested for selling a controlled substance, meaning weed, after my freshman year here at State. This occurred in the Lawndale neighborhood on Chicago's west side and caused my mother, or should I say me, many problems. <laughs> This event led to me being dragged away from home and some dialogue from my mother that I'd never heard before 
from her before, although I heard other people say those things. As I was being handcuffed and read my rights, she started screaming, no good motherfucker, and went completely out of control, and I realized that she was yelling at me and not the cops. <laughs> she began to slap me, and they had to restrain her. So this was another event that most people will never have to put themselves through, hearing their own mother say motherfucker, and cops respond with laughter as if I was not humiliated enough. But the ripple effect that we talk about in class, what happened after the event, was even more interesting than what I've really chosen to pursue in this paper and even write a scene about. While I was gone that afternoon, my mother had to call the coaches here at State to tell them the details of what happened. Everybody knows players smoke weed. I heard the NBA doesn't even test for it anymore. Don't ask me why colleges do. This was after my freshman year. I'm now a junior. Don't ask me why it took so long to take this class. And I was named the league's, the league's freshman of the year, the trophy of which my mother tried to hit me with too while I was in handcuffs. I had to calm everyone down and tell my mom to put the damn trophy back on the TV where it still sits, chip and all. But I bailed out thanks to Red, an old partner of mine, and I didn't even have to spend the night, which I was thankful for. I got home and the phone was ringing. It was my coaches who already knew what happened because of my mom's panicking. Glad she's not my coach, right? So I had to explain everything to Coach Pytel, who probably thought he'd get polluted talking to a drug dealer. And I was damn near in tears for real because I thought they'd take my scholarship until Coach Pytel said this, did you talk to any reporters? So I said, no, this is Chicago. Getting popped for weed happens every day. Pytel said, you think there's a chance it'll stay out of the newspapers? See, he never had any experience with Chicago cops. Not that I had a whole lot. So I told Pytel that it went to trial and got convicted, and I would make the paper for sure. See, I was what the coaches call a sleeper, meaning nobody ever paid attention to me or realized I was going to be a great player. But in a funny way, I could tell, even when I was in high school, I started seeing plays develop, and I'd make my move, but it was like my body wouldn't listen to me. Not yet. Meaning that I'd missed the steal or the block shot, but I knew I should have had it, and in my mind I did make the play. Once I got to college as a freshman, I guess my body started to catch up to my mind. And the plays where I used to be too late, now I was making them easy. Plus I gained about 10 pounds eating in the cafeteria, which my mother was mad about, since she's a better cook, smile. The next day, the next day, I mean really the next day, Pytel called me again, but this time he was at the Midway Airport and he said to stay at home because he was coming to visit. Pytel hadn't been to our apartment since he came that one single time by himself for his recruiting trip before I decided what college to attend. On that day, in my last week of high school, he said, all we're offering you is a, a chance. There's no guarantees about the, through the scholarship about playing time. So that day was different. The day after my arrest, though, I met a much different coach, Pytel. Here's why. Now that I was already the team's best player, he talked to me the way I wished he had before. You're our best player, he said. We never had anyone become freshman of the year, so we're going to do our damnedest to help you here. And he just generally made a fuss over me, saying it would be a shame if my career ended over this, and that he'd already left the message for the public defender. I knew what was up, but I said, y'all kicked Harvey Wilkins off the team last year just for smoking. I mean, here I was, selling. Then Pytel repeated Harvey Wilkins' name in a way that I knew we both knew what was the deal. Harvey Wilkins wasn't shit. I was dunking on Harvey Wilkins while I was still homesick my first week. 
Next week, a miracle happened. My public defender dis discovered that the warrant that the cops had had, sorry, my public defender discovered that the warrant that the cops used had the wrong address. It said 832 South Kedvale, but our apartment building is 932, and 832 doesn't even exist. And they spelled my name wrong. So the whole case was thrown out, and the cops would have to find someone else to fuck with because that side job career for me was now over. I hope you learned your lesson, my mom said, like moms probably say all the time. Except I did learn a lesson, another besides do not sell weed. I called Pytel to say the whole case had been dropped and they could stop fretting. Pytel answered and told me to hold on a minute. He had to excuse himself from a meeting with the school's president. And I thought, and I'm being real here, when will this shit ever happen again? Meaning I didn't want the coaches to stop sweating me and treating me special. They were now worried about my life and my career and my grades. Sorry to keep you waiting, Pytel said. I had to tell the president it was an emergency. What's the latest? No news, I said. But it was like I heard me saying that, because at that same instant I was thinking, why are you lying to Coach Pytel, Leonard Redman? Why not just come out and tell the coaches that the charges were dropped? That was the first lie I told the coaches. Pytel told me the plan that he had cooked. They were going to put me in the easiest classes, meaning criminal justice and the like. And I was going to just play through the year, and then when my trial came, I'd have a bunch of A's to show the judge. Did you talk to the public defender, I asked? If Pytel had talked to him, he'd know the whole case had been dropped with a bad habit. But Pytel had not talked to the PD since the first time. And I told him that Mr. Greenberg said it was better from now on if none of the coaches called ever again. Which was the second lie I told, and leads me to the real conflict of this essay. Getting arrested for drugs would be more sentimental and, cliche, and a cliché conflict that as writers we are supposed to avoid. Instead, it was telling a lie to help myself and improve my status, even though being known by the coaches to be a drug dealer, most people would think is not too helpful. So it's ironic, which means better. <laughs> that? <laughs> right. <laughs> That September, my sophomore year, the coaches signed me up for introduction to criminal justice and also jazz to rock and marriage in the family and two others, but not this English class, smile, so I had a very relaxed time. I was supposed to be frantic about my upcoming trial and what, was I, and what I was going to do, I'm sorry, what I was going to say to the judge on my own behalf. And instead, it was Coach Pytel that was worried, always on my tip, checking up on me like my mom when I had my tonsils up. Pytel would ask, would ask, did I need anything? Did I talk to the people at the public defender's office? Then it was extra Nikes and sweatsuits and sometimes even single rooms on road trips. And I began to wonder if I should tell the coaches a third lie, that there had been a continuance in the trial and that the whole case might take another year and to keep those new Nikes coming. Now I know that I pushed the whole thing too far. I realized it one morning when I was next door at the Nigerian's apartment. The Nigerian's on the basketball team, too. I nicknamed him Jungle Boogie, but he's serious for real, although he can't play too bad. It was a Monday morning, and Pytel was coming by the apartments as usual, pretending it was something important, like where did I think the team should eat pregame meal, but really to find me and make sure that I got out of bed and went to class. I didn't mind, because who wouldn't like, who wouldn't like being chauffeured to class three days a week? Jungle Boogie pulled the drapes back. Coach Pytel is here. He just beeped his horn. If I wasn't in my own apartment, he'd know to check the jungle movies, but I didn't move. 
let him come and get me, I said. I just put some cinnamon pop tarts in the toaster. <laughs> Jungle Boogie got that look on his face he gets when he's thinking about Marcus Garvey and Malcolm X. He started talking about our over-dependence on the white man and the cycle of poverty that I was now part the cycle of poverty that I was now party to. Party nothing, I said. I'd be doing this even if Pytel was black. But Jungle Boogie said that wasn't the point. The point was that all the coaches had made a colony out of me, and now I was part of their system just by playing along. And maybe he had a point, although he made almost the same statement when I was waiting for this fine girl from La Jolla to swing by the apartment in her new Altima. What Malcolm X and the coaches and some slim goodie from California have in common, I still don't exactly get. Jungle Boogie didn't know anything about my court case for selling weed, let alone the whole thing being cropped, but I started thinking that maybe he was right. There was only a few games left in my junior season, and the coaches thought my trial was coming up soon. It was not, but still I figured this was the time for me to change. I saw Pytel slam his car door like he was mad. Just as he started to come up the stairs to get me, I was coming down from Jungle Boogie's apartment. I'll get to class on my own, I said. I could see that Jungle Boogie was right. Pytel needed me more than I needed him. It's over a mile, Pytel said. You don't want to be late. I said, I got legs. The end. <laughs> I think we're going to take a little intermission for <laughs> 10 minutes or so and then come back to two great writers, Rob and Emily. Okay, once more, that was Sarah Gerkensmeyer and Russ Bradbird, uh, the first half of our Sunday Salon Chicago reading. What did you think? Um, I really enjoyed it. Um, I, I will say, and this is a little bit of a spoiler, this was the upbeat part of the reading. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good point. It really was. I liked um, Sarah Gerkensmeyer. She read two different parts, and I liked both of them, obviously, but I thought that second one was really kind of a unique idea. It was really cool. I agree wholeheartedly. So thank you to the hosts of Sunday Salon Chicago, Natalia, Alexandra, and Christine for having us out. Um, a good time. I definitely think that uh, Rob and I will be at another Sunday Salon. For sure. As long as they move it closer to here. Maybe on our 200th episode or our 250th episode. Yeah. How long could it really take us to do another 100? Not very. I mean, dude, we're on 150. We've been just over two years we've been doing this. So, yeah, we're like, yeah. All right. So speaking of which, Rob, the statistics master, um, compiled uh, some, some, some statistics specifically on this 150th episode about readings. So this is the sixth live reading we've recorded for the podcast. That's pretty cool. Yeah. All within. Um, so the podcast started in April of 2011. We didn't actually record a live reading until February of 2012. So the first, what is that, 10 months mm-hmm. of the podcast was just book reviews, readings, and interludes. We hadn't done any live reading recordings yet. But after that point, man, it's like we the doors blew open because... We did uh, one that February, two that March, then we did an October one, and then we did the Manarchy one this past March, and then this Sunday Salon Chicago one in, in May uh, of this year. It's a lot of stuff. 
And those six totaled out for um, a total of 20 episodes. 20 episodes with 37 different authors. That's crazy. And, 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 and drumroll. <laughs> who's the, who's the top, who's the top guy to read? <laughs> the most commonly appearing reader is David James Keaton. Oh, <laughs> no surprise there. Followed, followed not too far behind by Caleb J. Ross. I get the feeling there will be more of both of those guys in readings uh, on this show in the future. Yeah. If you think about it, dude, 37 authors, that's 37 different stories that people wrote that they were like reading, you know, out loud to us. You got, we gave you basically a whole anthology worth of stories in podcast form. That's a very interesting way to look at it. Yeah. From the author's mouths. Very cool. I enjoy. I enjoy the readings. Seriously, I mean, if, if you had to pick a favorite, yeah, you know, it's hard. Don't 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 do it because we just recorded <laughs> Sunday Salon Chicago. Of yeah, course, exactly. <laughs> Never mind. We'll revisit this again. That's um, going to be a Donny booked right there. That's what that yes, is. Yes, it is. Oh, oh, Rob's, <laughs> te- Rob's teasing stuff again. Here's um, the thing about doing a podcast like this, like. It's not just like it does. It's never enough to just do the podcast. We something always comes up where we want to do a fun project as well. And the Donnybrook thing came out as a joke, but like every time we talk now, we say Donnybrook, it just gets more and more like it's actually a thing that we need to start doing. And same thing with the anthology and tons of other things. We just, we get an idea and we just can't let it lay. We have to do it. That's right. So, uh, yeah, I, Rob and I are already in discussions, um, before the end of the year, I think you'll be seeing an official, official, Donnie booked tournament. That's right. And then not long after the end of the year, we'll be seeing an official uh, lawsuit from Frank, Frank Bill. Bill. <laughs> Listen, if Frank Bill wants half of what we make on this podcast, he's, <laughs> he can he can take it. Yeah, because we need to pay those bills. And if he wants to pick up half of that. Oh, you know what? Honestly, Frank is such a great guy. I'm pretty sure he'd be flattered that, that, so we, use the, that we use that concept. I think so, too. All right, so up next, um, as if we haven't done enough reading episodes, there will be part two of Sunday Salon Chicago, and that will feature Emily Rapp and, and, uh, I didn't want to officially say it, but this is Rob Roberge month here on the book podcast, so um, Rob Roberge. That's right. How exciting is that? It's pretty awesome. Very, very cool. He's not as tall as I expected him to be, to be honest. But then again, I'm six foot two, so like yeah. I can pretty much say that about most authors I meet. Yeah. He's like he writes so much taller than he is. <laughs> he does, right? He's he writes pretty tall. <laughs> Just picturing this poor guy like at school and they're like right within your height. <laughs> Never. He's like all bitter and crying. You'll see one day. At any rate, the tallest writer we know on the inside, Rob Roberge and Emily Rapp next episode. Until then, I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading.